This is 50 miles per hour. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. You're deeply nuts, you know that. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is on. Stay on or get off. If it drops below 50, stay on or get off. It blows up. Oh darn. What do you do? You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? I'm your host, Chris Tapley, and you're listening to an oral history of director Jan de Bont's 1994 summer blockbuster, Speed. Straight from the people who made it happen. Now, don't forget to fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road. All right, don't touch that dial. You're in the right place. I mean, if you're looking for an absurdly deep dive into the making of a 30-year-old action movie, yeah, you're in the right place. Today, as we continue breaking down the development of speed step-by-step, it's time to cast a female lead. Someone to play bus passenger-turned-driver Annie, opposite newly signed star Keanu Reeves. In fact, if you'll recall, Fox had been playing around with the idea of casting this role even before they landed their male lead in Keanu. Here's former Fox executive Jorge Saralegui explaining that one more time. At one point, we decide, okay, what if we cast Sandy's role big? Okay, like Halle Berry. And then we can get somebody lesser for Keanu's role. And she turned it down, which is funny because like a few years later, her manager, who I'm talking to about something completely different, says, yeah, you know, Halle Berry's still beats herself up over having turned down speed. Um, and the, the thing is, it wouldn't have been the same thing. Although it might have been really good in a different way, you know what I'm saying? But, but it wouldn't have been the same thing because, I mean, that chemistry, I doubt it would have been Keanu Reeves. And, and, and not that you needed him, but the chemistry that it had is kind of miraculous. And, of course, he's talking about Keanu and the actress who would eventually land the part of Annie, Sandra Bullock. And that's the story we're going to tell today. Remember, the character was originally called Darlene. Here's how she's described in an early draft of the script. A woman runs for the bus. This is Darlene. She's attractive, she's funny, and she's late. Eventually that description would read, Annie, 20s, beautiful, the snap of wit in her eyes, springs toward the leaving bus and finally catches up to it one block later. Now, just like the search for Jack Traven, the search for Annie, who would still be called Darlene all the way up until just before shooting, by the way, had its hands tied in the sense that the studio would have loved the name actress for the part, but there wasn't that kind of money to throw at anyone. Not only that, but the belt on the film's slowly increasing budget was starting to get a little tight, and this search for Darlene slash Annie is literally lasting all the way up until the brink of production. This entire time, there's a lot of pressure on this. And as we rewrite the script and put in Jan's stuff, it keeps, the budget keeps getting knocked up. So even though we're not paying anybody anything, as you can tell from the cast, uh, the movie ended up going off at 20 officially, which already made them nervous. Cause now the, it, you know, at 15, it didn't matter what happened. Like we get away with it, you know, as an action movie. Okay. At 20, there was some concern and there's no stars in it. So we still don't have, by the way, in this conversation, no Sandra Bullock and no Dennis Hopper. Okay. Um, so now we're getting right near the end and we cast Sandra Bullock. We thought about a lot of different people. We heard from casting director Risa Bramon Garcia for the first time a couple of weeks ago. 
She's really going to play a big part in things going forward, because both the search for Annie and the search for all those character actors on the bus in Speed would prove to be a difficult one. Here's Risa. Yeah, there were all just tons of actresses and, and people who might have been Mamie at the time, but we also auditioned a ton of people. And it was a hard part to audition for, as you might imagine. Here is director Jan DeBont. We were looking more at, at non-star actors who already had experience, and but more, most importantly, had authenticity. Um, that is always like, you, they have, I mean, of course, a lot of actors have star quality, but uh, star quality uh, is not really what I was after. Because I've worked on so many action movies, I could always already predict what they were going to do. If they're a good actor, I know what they're going to do. And here is producer Mark Gordon. There was every young actress that was available that and gettable was on our list. We were running out of time. <laughs> Are we making this movie or not? All right, who do we have to play this part? Well, nobody. Well, who's the best nobody that we have? <laughs> Sandy. Okay, Fox, can we make this movie or not? Sandy was amazing. She, I had done a movie with her called The Vanishing, which is a remake. Nessie Travis was the main woman in the film. Sandy was the dead wife. And she was so happy to have that part. But to me, she was so amazing in that. I was so excited to bring her in for this. But just like Keanu Reeves had, as production president Tom Jacobson put it, no comps for an action movie like this. Well, just what do you think Sandra Bullock had? In the summer of 1993, she had been around. But even at 28 years old, about a month older than Keanu Reeves, actually, she was not anyone the audience knew. She had paid her dues. She showed up in TV movies like Bionic Showdown, which found her opposite the $6 million man and the Bionic woman themselves, Lee Majors and Lindsay Wagner. She had secured what might have been a breakout in a TV series version of the feature film Working Girl if the show had lasted more than one season in 1990. She started turning some heads with a sort of ugly duckling role in Love Potion No. 9 in 1992, and as a free-spirited country singer in Peter Bogdanovich's The Thing Called Love a year later. And in fact, 1993 would serve as a bit of a breakthrough year for her, with roles opposite Robert Duvall and wrestling Ernest Hemingway and Jeff Bridges in the film Risa mentioned, The Vanishing. But one film in particular that year, which was still on the way to theaters when production on Speed was gearing up, was the one that somehow squared off the studio math for casting her in an action movie. Here's Jorge speaking to that. Lori Petty was going to do Demolition Man and then didn't. Sandra Bullock does Demolition Man. And so therefore Sandra Bullock does an action movie, which is not who she is, you know, um, as you have seen from her subsequent work. It's not what she just leans towards okay, when you give her a choice. Um, but she was, you know, up and coming at that point. Um, and uh, I met with her and she was great. And she definitely wanted to do it. And so we tell ourselves, okay, you know, she'll be fine in the role. And... Demolition Man is going to be coming out. That'll be a big movie, so that'll elevate her name. So today, it's like hiring nobody. But tomorrow, it'll be the star, the romantic lead of that movie. Now, of course, that movie didn't really do all that much, and it didn't help our cause in reality at all, okay? But that was the thinking. Not bad for a 74-year-old. Simon Phoenix knows he has some competition. He's finally matched his meat. You really licked his ass. That's met his match and kicked, kicked his ass. Met, met his match and kicked his ass. Met his match and kicked his ass. 
I love that movie. Like, so much. Don't tempt me, alright? We'll end up with a whole other podcast here. Anyway, here is former Fox production president Tom Jacobson. It was traditional casting. She came in. She was not at the star level, obviously, yet, where you just offer her the part. I don't remember conversations about where did we go after people like that, like that are just, you know, offer them the part you don't read. She read. I don't know whether she did a chemistry read with Keanu. I can't remember that. Maybe someone else remembers that. Keanu, I, I know he had issues with the film overall, you know, like, and so he was in his own place of, is this going to work? Why am I doing this? You know, will this succeed? How do we make this happen? I don't think his head was into the relationship between the two of them. But what in the audition, it was magic between them. And it was, there was no question. And don't ask me why I do not have these VHS tapes. Like why I threw every audition tape out because I wish to God that I had kept all of them. But I remember it was really, really fun and lovely and magical between them. And it was like a no-brainer. It was like, he said, yes, it's got to be her. Everyone, we were just like, it's got to be her. And then it was like the fight to make it happen. And I just was, I just would, I, I knew in my gut that she had to do this part. And I just, especially having been through all the people on all the lists and all the auditions. All right. Now, as it pertains to Sandra Bullock in this podcast. Similar to Keanu Reeves, I have one interview with her. Again, it's from a decade ago when I was writing about this film's 20th anniversary. What's worse is it's not only much shorter than my already brief interview with Keanu, but the audio is... less than ideal, let's say. But it's what I have to work with at the moment, and just like with Keanu, I hope to sit down with Sandra and go deeper into her experience on this film before the clock runs out on 50 miles per hour. But for now... Via crappy 2014 cell phone audio, here is Sandra Bullock recalling this period of time. I mean, I know that during the audition process, I was the last person that Fox Studio wanted. I mean, they wanted, understandably, a list of names, you know, and, and Jan kept having me come back in and audition with the ever-so-beautiful Keanu with some fold-out chair yeah. pretending I was grabbing his <laughs> you know. And, you know, I, I mean, that's what I remember. I just remember that process and, and, and knowing very well that I was chosen by Jan over what the studio wanted him to pick. She was just so goddamn uh, appealing. And when, when she came in and auditioned, we were all like, oh, my God, this woman is magnificent. Let's hope that we can cast her, that they'll let us cast her. Let's hear from screenwriter Graham Yost, and remember, by now he's seen this role shift quite a bit over the years of development, first at Paramount and then at Fox. He had taken the character from a drug-addicted ambulance driver to a wisecracking stand-up comedian. And even all of that would shift in due time. Here's Graham. Everyone knew Sandra was the right choice. There was sort of no question about that. There, there was this sort of sense of like, oh no, she's going to be a star, let's get her now while we can. Um, she'd been in three movies and just had gotten great reviews every time. Everyone knew that she was, she was something. And her manager didn't want her to do this. So when we got down to it, the manager like, was asking for an, an incredibly bizarrely huge amount of money. And the studio didn't want her. And I remember, I, I don't know why, but I remember exactly where I was sitting in, a, in, in the production office at a desk on the Fox lot arguing with everybody and Jan would say to me you know 
I said, you have to, you and Mark have to go and fight this fight. I can't do this by myself, you know? And they were like, let's look at other people. Let's go back. And I go, no, she has to like, she, she's tested with Keanu and they were rolling around on the floor of the office together. And there were, it was fun and they really liked each other. She had told me Sandy that she did want to do it or she was, you know, but her manager was really blocking it from my end. But I think in the end, try to just get her a really good deal because the money wasn't great. Um, but kept saying, there's no reason for her to do this movie other than a payday, yada, yada. And I would even say to the manager, you know, they don't want her at Fox and she'd go fine. Then we're done. So I remember sitting there that day and like thinking, I'm going to lose this battle. Like there's no way to win this thing. And then I don't remember how or why it turned around. I think we had a meeting with them or, um, Jan and Mark went to the mat for it, but it, it was, it was tough to make it, to make that deal and to make that happen. I will take credit for fighting the fight on both sides, meaning the studio didn't want her because she had been in love potion number nine and it was a flop and she was blamed for it for some reason. Um, or she took some of the blame. And so they were like, we are not putting her in this movie. She did really badly in love potion number nine, which was not a good movie. And we're just, you know, no. This thing about Love Potion number 9 being a sticking point for the studio rings true based on my other chats. Just for the uninitiated, it's not a good movie. It's basically a riff on the song. Sandra and co-star Tate Donovan, who was actually her fiancé once upon a time, get a hold of a little funky cold Medina, if you will. A potion that makes people of the opposite sex infatuated with you. And the movie bends over backwards to make Sandra unattractive, but of course that's futile. Anyway, the movie did bomb, and the stench apparently lingered at Fox. One of the people I've talked to on this journey is Thomas Grain. Tom runs a company today called Mob Scene, which is a full-service Hollywood agency specializing in, among other things, producing behind-the-scenes materials for electronic press kits, or EPKs, and other content used to promote filmed entertainment. I mean, there's more to it, but that's the quick and dirty explanation. But 30 years ago, Tom was the Senior Vice President of Promotional Programming at Fox, which is the kind of position you find at every studio today. But at the time, he was one of, if not the first, to have this kind of in-house gig. Anyway, we'll hear a lot more from him down the road, but he did mention one thing about the casting of Sandra Bullock that sort of struck me. Here's Tom Grain. We had done the potion number nine with Sandy beforehand, um, and I remember... I remember actually one of the head, one of the people in business affairs complaining to me that I'm pretty sure he said that he was he was he was pissed off and upset that he had to pay her four hundred thousand dollars for speed, you know thought that it was that the, the studio was overpaying that she was not no, she was a nobody, but again in retrospect that was the best four hundred thousand dollars one of the best four hundred thousand dollars they spent on the movie because she came out of it such a huge star. We, on the creative side, really liked her in Love Potion Number 9, which was not a successful movie for us, which is why the counts and other people are like, well, she was in a movie that was, if not a bomb, not a success. So why are we? And we said, well, that's not her fault. She's good in the movie. I don't remember what we paid her, but I will tell you, more important than the 400000 or whatever they may have paid her is her lawyer got us to pay her two and a half or some net, some net points. And, and of course, net points are never worth anything except on speed. And so she did very well on the movie, better than she might have 
had she not had an incredibly aggressive lawyer. And so he did very well by her on that deal. In the end, whether it was it was retroactive or otherwise, she deserved it. And Sandra, by the way, really gives Jan de Bont a lot of credit in this. He chose me uh, over so many people that probably would have helped that movie get kicked off uh, in a bigger way. But he, he gave me the opportunity. So I got to say, he, he had some pretty big balls. And <laughs> I'm grateful for his large balls. And you can quote me on that. And if you could get a visual to go along with that quote, that would be great. <laughs> I have to believe that that woman actually would ride the bus regularly and also could drive the bus. You know, there's no way I would try, I would believe that from Julia Roberts. I mean, that's nothing to do with her acting, of course. It's just not her, mm-hmm. you know. And and a lot of other actresses, they would I would never believe that they would do that. And with with uh, with this, her hands-on quality, um, she is. Uh, I com- completely could see that she would do the bus, that he she could drive the bus and make it believable. But, uh, but she was perfect. There's one moment in the movie, by the way, that I've grown to suspect was an improvisation by Sandra. None of the writers have claimed it anyway, so I asked Jan. You know that bit where Alan Ruck's dorky tourist character, Stevens, is trying to strike up some small talk with Annie, and then she sort of sneakily pulls her gum out of her mouth and shows it to him, and tells him that it was stuck on her seat in order to move away? Oh, jeez. You know it took me three hours just to get here from the airport? I got so lost. L.A. is one large place. Of course, you live here, you probably don't notice. I'm such a yokel. Jeez. <laughs> there, I said it. <laughs> you know what? I, I got gum on my seat. Yeah, that's the part. Anyway, yep, that was an improv from Sandra. That's what her to the end. Yeah. No, but that's also see how can you write that? Because it's like because she does it the the way she does it. I feel she's done that several times before in her life. You know, I wouldn't even occur to me. That's disgusting. But and that's why it works so well. You know, it's really really great. The other thing you have to point out here is the sort of intangible thing that Sandra brought to the movie and out of her co-star. Although I guess it's quite tangible. There's a quality to who Keanu Reeves is, or would appear to be, and how he performs, how he approaches this work, that sits in such stark contrast to Sandra Bullock. Opposites attract is probably too simplistic, but there's definitely an interesting spark between the two in the film, and she kind of feels like both the flint and the kindling, if you will. That's a tortured metaphor, but you get it. She generates a lot of this chemistry herself. Now, I'm not sure if this next observation is entirely fair, but it's certainly valid because it's firsthand. This is Loida Ramos, who stars as additional bus passenger number six in the film. Like the others, who you'll meet on this podcast very soon, she was there on the bus every day. This was her assessment of Sandra and Keanu. I know that there was a lot of concern about the fact that they didn't feel there was any chemistry with them. Keanu and Sandy at the beginning, and I remember them trying to push Sandy to get Keanu to loosen up. And um, I felt bad for her because she was in a bad spot. You know, she, she wanted this film to work, you know, and she was getting nothing from him, like nothing, you know. To me, she saves the film. You know, he looks good, but she saves it. Let's go back to casting director Risa Bramon Garcia. Well, I wasn't there, you know on set and I know that there were some issues that were talked about. Um, and sometimes it was like, Oh, Keanu's monosyllabic and yada, yada, whatever. But I think she was the one who was our access point to him. 
And I know it took a little time for her and Keanu to create their dynamic, but ultimately they did, of course. I just think that there were so many things that, that, that just are inherent in her. Uh, and she brought like real vulnerability and, 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 and an emotional life. And that's like that combination of those qualities is really hard to find really hard to find. And you look at it and you go, well, of course the part needed that, but we couldn't find that. And even some of the people we offered it to or chased, like sometimes there were like people who passed before being offered it. Like, would they consider this? No, they're passing. But anybody we went to, like, I don't think anybody had all of that. As I sat down to write this episode, I was struck by the fact that I didn't have a list of names that were in the mix for this role. I mean, outside of that swing for Halle Berry. I get the feeling so much of this existed more as names on a wish list, but then actresses certainly tested for the role, and they offered it outright to some who just said no. Risa said things boiled down to two other actresses in the end, and the name Olivia Dabo popped into her head. Though you almost have to wonder if she was thinking about Flying, aka Teenage Dream, which was a 1986 high school love story that no one saw, starring Dabo and, wait for it, Keanu Reeves. But anyway, I guess the point is, no one left a memory or a mark. Sandra Bullock's star was simply that bright. Speaking of that word, star, look, I think it's clear Sandra Bullock would have been a star with speed or without it. But something had to win the contest if what movie gets to say it did it. And so, speed is the movie that made Sandra Bullock a star. You probably get the idea by now that we'll be diving deeper into all things Sandra in next week's episode. But in its broadest impact, I would say this is the most significant legacy of Speed. If there is a Star is Born moment here, it's hers. It's hers. It's hers. Because Keanu would have been a star anyway, because he already was a kind of a star, because guys have it easy. If they're good, I mean, good looking guys have it easy. You get 8,000 chances. Cinder Bullock, starting with that movie, was, you know, a cheerleader and putting yourself out there. Just, she's just an unbelievable person. You know, there's something that the audience relates to, obviously, and it's a combination of the movie and the performance and the essence of the, of the person. So the fact that it was a really good movie and that she it sort of showcased their skill sets together is what launched them. I mean, they launched themselves, stars launched themselves, but they use an opportunity like this to do it. She brought humor which, you know, was always helpful because she was funny. You know, she's a funny person. She brought so much likability that you really rooted for her. And she brought that to the relationship. Ultimately, she brought incredible strength to the, to, to the role, you know, and like was a good girl, the girl next door, but, but she brought that kind of, you know, uh, hero strength to it. And I think for women, even that many years ago, you know, we just didn't see a lot of that. And so as a as a strong young woman, it was great that she had that in her. She was great to everybody. And and she stayed pretty grounded, you know, like in, as her career evolved. So I think that was helpful to the making of this thing because it, you know, it took a lot of stamina to do, to get through these scenes, you know, and, and be on that bus and go through all everything. Quite often um, those star actress, they kind of tend to isolate themselves on the set and direct the trailer. Mm-hmm. She never did. She was always on the set. She helped with people. She, you know, anything they could do to to make it easier for other people. And and 
with, with, with makeup or with costumes or so you did everything to really make it pleasant. Because you, when you sit on a bus for that long, many weeks on, 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 and on end, then you have to have a, a, have a character that is really wants to accommodate and give a helping hand all the time. And the, and the other passengers related also immediately to her as well. So they didn't relate. They didn't feel like they were dealing with a star. I was just happy to get the job. I mean, it, it, you know, I think we were sort of ridiculed a little bit for the you know the low budget bomb on the bus movie, and and you know, not that I cared. Again, I was just so happy to have a job, and I was you know I got to work with Keanu, and and um, so I was just grateful no matter what it was. When that bomb went off, I know. I thought that was it. I thought that was a bomb. And I was dead. And then when I saw her body fall under the bus, it was like... You were glad you were still alive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Don't be. You should be glad. We all are. Doesn't mean you don't care. I know, but she was so scared. She was scared. She was a nice lady who didn't deserve to get killed, but Annie, if she'd gotten off, it would have killed us all. He's the asshole, Annie. The guy who put us here. Remember that, okay? Big asshole. Next week on 50 Miles Per Hour. We've got our Annie. Now let's get to know Sandra Bullock. She's taking a sort of typically male stardom rise and putting her own spin on it, which I think was pretty bold. I talked to IndieWire executive editor Kate Erbland about how Speed launched the actress out of a cannon and set her on course for a massively successful career. And then all of a sudden it's like, she's, she's a movie star. She's like a fully formed movie star. She is rocketed into the upper echelon of not just female movie stars, but Hollywood movie stars. And it's not just, oh, she's great at this. She's also a really great business person. We talk about the audience Bullock commands to this day and walk you through her filmography roll by roll, including the one that brought her Oscar gold. She hit so well because it is not something we're used to seeing from her, but it also taps into stuff we are used to seeing. And she's doing different things, but I think people always like Sandra and they feel like they know her. All of that and more next week right here on 50 Miles Per Hour. Thanks so much for listening. 50 Miles Per Hour is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Chris Tapley. You can find us on Twitter at 50MPHPod. I'm at Chris Tapley. That's Chris with a K. You can also catch every episode and more at our website, 50MPHPodcast.com. If you dug the show, please like and subscribe and do all the things. We'll see you next time.